0: Ireland a month ago, you will have known that there was a major upheaval in the financial world as billions of pounds, dollars, yen, and goodness knows what, were wiped off the value of stocks and shares. Uh, Financial experts were absolutely clear about the reason for this, so I will tell you why it happened. Listen carefully. Subprime problems in the U.S. mortgage market are causing declines in world share prices. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a great deal clearer after knowing that. And I'm even less clear about what I'm supposed to do now. I do know that. Is this, if I have the money, is this a time to buy while share prices are low and may bounce back? Or is it a time to sell? for they may drop even further. No one, not even the experts, can be certain. But there are certain situations when the decision of whether to buy or to sell is what is called a no-brain question. And today, as we continue our series in the book of Jeremiah, which we've called Living in Hope, we find such a set of circumstances. The city of Jerusalem is under siege and has been for several months. A vast army of the superpower of Babylon is encamped outside the walls on every side. Siege ramps are being built up to the walls to break in. People with property on the inside, next to the walls, are pulling down their properties in order to shore up the defences. And just a few weeks previously, a relief force from Egypt, the last hope for this stricken city, had taken one look at the situation and decided to turn around and go home. So, in the Jerusalem stock market at this time, if they'd had one, <coughs> it was what is called a seller's market. At such a time, only a fool would buy property or land in the nation of Judah. Or a prophet who had inside information, or more precisely, outside information, about what was going to happen in the future. And in that city at such a time was a man, a prophet. His name was Jeremiah. And as the city's walls and stock markets are about to collapse, He does something remarkable. He buys a field just three miles northeast of Jerusalem, which at the moment is occupied by the Babylonian army. Now, why on earth would he do such a thing? Quite simply because in our title this morning, Jeremiah is investing in God's future. And I want us to look at this together, focusing particularly on the chapter we read and referring more briefly to the following chapter. And before you fall asleep at this point and think, well this is an interesting story or not an interesting story that happened 2,600 years ago, stay with me because I'm going to give you in the end some inside information about the future which it would be greatly to your profit to pay attention to. So I've tried to Divide this up and I'm discussing it with Colin in the week as we do when we're preaching. I'm not particularly happy about the headings, but they're just labels and things to hang things on. So if they frustrate you as they have me, just don't worry about it. But we'll try and follow the story through in three steps, all right? Okay, here's the first step. Acting on the Lord's instruction. Here's the first step to investing in God's future. Acting on the Lord's instruction. Jeremiah has been placed under house arrest by King Zedekiah for stirring up sedition, bordering on treason, by saying that the city and king are absolutely doomed and there is no point in fighting against it. Increasingly, however, his predictions look like they're going to come true. So as Jeremiah ponders this, he must have been rather surprised by this strange prophecy he received from the Lord, which related to him personally about something that was going to happen. What the Lord tells Jeremiah, verses 6 to 7 is, you're about to receive an offer. Jeremiah said to me, the word of the Lord came to me, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, by my field at Anathoth... Because as nearest relative, it's your right and duty to buy it. And what is clear as the story unfolds is that the Lord says to Jeremiah, you're about to receive an offer that you must not refuse. Later on, he says, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Verse 25. Now, in the midst of all these amazing prophecies about events that are going to happen and the end of the world and the reign of the Messiah and all the other things, the new covenant we've been looking at, why on earth does the Lord give him this instruction about buying a field? Why does he tell him you're going to receive an offer that you must not refuse? Well, the first and most obvious reason is because Annette knew this, this is an offer he definitely would have refused. In normal circumstances, Jeremiah would have been expected to buy this field because the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 25, if you want the legal details, uh, laid down prescriptions so that large landowners couldn't take over from small farmers. So that if you got in difficulties and you needed to sell some land or a farm or whatever it was, rather than it falling into their hands, you, gave, you went to your nearest ne- relative and said, look, Will you help me out by buying this or redeeming it? But these aren't normal circumstances. It it looks absolutely likely, and Jeremiah of all people knew this, that in the very near future, no Israelite would own any land. Not least the field in question, which as we've said, was occupied by the Babylonian army. And Jeremiah had been prophesying about this for 40 years, saying it's going to happen. So his natural response would have been when he got this offer to say, well, thanks, Hanamel, but uh, no thanks. Which is why he needed contrary instruction from the Lord. Now, it's a lovely story. I, I was kind of trying to visualise it this week. Uh, no doubt Jeremiah still sitting there puzzling out this prophecy. Your cousin Hanamel is going to come and offer you a field. And then the prison governor comes in and he says, uh, Jeremiah, you've got a visitor. And the door opens and in comes long lost cousin Hanamel. Now, apart from this this story, we don't have any information about Hanamel, But the very fact that he's trying to sell his cousin a field at this particular time doesn't paint him in a very favourable light. Uh, one commentator, Derek Kidney, uh, Kidner, asks, was there ever a more insensitive prison visitor? <laughs> well, I don't know. We don't, we're not told. Maybe he just bring a nice bunch of grapes for Jeremiah. Uh, maybe he just say to him, you know, How are you doing? How's your health? You know, all the usual things when you visit people in prison, if you do. But he soon gets down to business and makes his offer. Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. Now, no doubt at this point, he's not too optimistic about the response. Maybe he's got a substory or two of his sleeve to deliver further, you know, to try and persuade Jeremiah to do the deed. But I'm sure he must have been absolutely amazed when Jeremiah says, Yeah, No problem. See, Hanumel thought, Jeremiah, he he, he doesn't know what's going on, but Jeremiah did. Notice what he says. Jeremiah's response, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanumel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. He pays the asking price. He calls a few of the loungers in the courtyard and says, Excuse me, will you sign this legal document? And they witness the document. It's signed and sealed. Two copies are made. Um, He gives one to his secretary, who we are introduced to for the first time in the story. We'll learn about him later on. A great man called Barak. And he says to Barak, take these documents away, seal them in a clay jar. This is my investment for the future. It's an example of what one might call faith in action. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is acting on future information that God has given you that you believe is absolutely sure to happen. So, look what he says, verse 13. In their presence I gave Barak these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they'll last a long time. That's what they did in those days. They put things in clay jars because they were dry, sealed them up. You see, such things even discovered these days in that part of the world. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Now, Jeremiah at this point looked an absolute fool. But he was investing in God's future, for he was publicly and practically affirming that he believed what he'd been preaching. That God would do what he said and would bring his people back home. Contrary to all expectations, Philip Reich in his commentary writes, Preserving the title to the property was an act of faith. When Jeremiah signed and sealed the deed, he was banking on God's ability to deliver on his promises. By faith he was making an investment in the kingdom of God. Despite the war, the siege, the destruction, the Babylons were about to wreak on Jerusalem and the 70 long years of captivity that would ensue, it was a buyer's market for those who trusted in God's promise. And Jeremiah believed he was willing to take the long view. Jeremiah believed he invested in God's future. And we're going to come back to it at the end of this message in a little while. But I pause for a moment to ask you, are you banking on God's future? Are you investing in the future that God says will come about for this world? So, let's try and visualize the scene again. Hanamel leaves the prison courtyard, jingling his shekels in his pocket, as one writer says, probably laughing all the way to the bank. Maybe he passes by those sitting you know, nearby who have witnessed it and gives them a, a light, you know, bit of a wink. And they give a nodding smile. You can imagine one of them saying to you, say, That's Jeremiah. One of these religious types, you know. Too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. And Barak, the secretary, he's got the documents. Off he goes to find a clay jar or buy one. I don't know did in those days. I suppose you bought one. Puzzled frown on his face. What is Jeremiah doing this time? He's going to be the laughing stock of the city when the news gets out. You'll never guess what Jeremiah's done this time. In the present circumstances, he's gone and bought a field. Yeah, that one up the road where the Babylonians are sitting, yes. And what does Jeremiah do? I think of Jeremiah there. He goes back into his confinement. The prison door shuts. Well, it's probably not like a cell, but house arrest. The door closes on Jeremiah. What does he do? Well, here's the second step to investing in God's future. You can summarize it by saying, when perplexed, Pray. After acting on the Lord's instruction, we find him praying for the Lord's affirmation. Verses 16 to 25. Before we turn to the prayer itself, notice the order. Living by faith, Jeremiah obeyed, then prayed. And is it not true? For most of us, we do things exactly the opposite way around. God tells us to do something, and we want a clear explanation, especially if it makes us look stupid. And then we say, Lord, tell me all about it and then I'll do it. But that's not faith. That's sight. When God told Jeremiah to buy the field, he obeyed. It was only after he obeyed that he sought some explanation from God about what he'd done. In his book on Jeremiah, Run With The Horses, Eugene Peterson comments, Jeremiah knew that buying that field looked impractical and foolish. It was against history against reason against public opinion but he didn't buy the field on the advice of his broker but by the leading of god he was not planning a retirement cabin on the property he was witnessing an involvement in the continuity of god's promises at the same time he couldn't help feeling foolish and so he prayed recentering himself in God's Word. Now, we could properly spend a whole sermon or two looking at this remarkable prayer of Jeremiah, and I can only touch briefly on it, but, but notice four aspects of the prayer, and one very remarkable thing as we come to the end of the prayer. The first thing you notice about the prayer, if you look carefully, is it's a personal prayer. You, you can learn a lot about the relationship between two people by when they meet each other, finding out how they talk to each other, how do they greet each other? They say hi. Or do they say, good morning? Or they say, Mr. or Mrs.? Or do they use your Christian name? Or do they say, hi, you? Or hey, mate? Or dear? Or darling? Or whatever it might be. And you can learn a lot about people by how they pray and how they address God. Do they use a term of intimacy? Or one of respect? Now, the way Jeremiah addresses God expresses both of those aspects, intimacy, he knows God, but also respect. How does he address God? He says, sovereign Lord. It's a kind of English translation of two Hebrew words. First one is the word generally used for Lord or Master. The second word is the word that God used to reveal himself to his people as the ever-living God. In the old versions it was Jehovah. Probably no one knows how it's pronounced, but probably something like Yahweh. He knows that God is sovereign, the ruler of all things. But it's easy to miss something—a little word that he begins this prayer with. In fact, we don't have time to look at it. If you go back in Jeremiah to our previous studies, there are four previous, three previous prayers, and each one begins with the same little word. Translated, "ah." I think in Hebrew, it's "aha." In general English usage, the word "ah" is, you know, kind of pleasant surprise. Ah, there you are sort of word, you know. But in Hebrew, it's a word, a little word, that expresses deep pain and anguish. Give an English quiver. Oh! Oh, Lord! It's a deep cry of the soul when faced with the most painful and confusing of experiences, and Jeremiah had plenty of them. So he's not hiding his gut... It is a gut word. He's not hiding his gut feelings from God. But he expresses what he really feels. I think the New Testament probably alludes to this when Paul writes in Romans 8, you know, when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express with... Now, I don't know about you and your experience. Have you, have you ever prayed like that? You know, when you've been faced with a situation and you just don't know what God is doing and you look stupid and it's just so confusing and, and you just say, Oh, dear Lord. And it goes, oh, Lord, what are you doing here? But He doesn't say that immediately. Notice the second feature is prayer, the obvious bit. It's a theological prayer. In other words, it talks about God and God's character. He describes, he begins with God's absolute power, uh, what's called omnipotence. He's the creator of all things. Nothing is too hard for you. Then he focuses on God's love. It's his special word of his covenant love, chesed, Hebrew, which is shown to his people. But at the same time, notice he affirms God's justice, that God is a God of justice. His love doesn't mean he doesn't overlook when people sin against him. He punishes sin and sinners. And then he he turns to God's omniscience, that God knows everything. Look what he says, your eyes are open to all the ways of men, verse 19. And having focused on God's character, he then says, Lord, I know that because you've demonstrated this in history. So, there's a historical aspect to this prayer. He recounts the history of Israel, from their miraculous deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And the way that God brought them into this wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. Then he brings their history right up to date to the present headlines. And he says, Lord, we entered this wonderful land, but we failed to keep your word. And that's why this disaster has come upon us. Now, when we pray, we have a much longer and greater record of God's character and history than than Jeremiah did. Beyond Jeremiah. Jeremiah. To the most wonderful events in history, the coming of Jesus Christ. We have a history of His people over two thousand years since that date. And the sad thing is, how many of us are just totally oblivious of this, and we ignore it. You see, you see, if you don't know that, it will limit your prayer life. For your expectation of who God is and what He can do will be limited, and, and that's why Jeremiah begins here. You see, so many of us would have begun with the problem. You know, we'd say, "Oh Lord, what's going on here?" Now, Jeremiah, as it were, reminds himself of who God is and what God has done. And as it were, if you put it in these words, reminds God of who he is and what he has done. And only then, with confidence, does he address his personal perplexity, his problem. One commentator writes, he offered seven parts of praise to one part of puzzlement. Count them all up. You can go through and see if they're Seven to one. So we see the final aspect of his prayer, which is practical. Now he says, And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Now again, notice, he doesn't actually ask God anything. In fact, even the word though, if you look at that verse, the word though has been inserted by the translators to try and make some sense of of how he finishes the prayer. It's as though, you know, it comes to the point that he kind of dries up in mid-sentence. There's no final... Amen! So be it, because he's not sure what he wants to be, actually. He he is seeking, in his confusion, the Lord's affirmation. Lord, I've done what you told me, but I need to know it's right. Now, in a congregation this size, there's probably at least one person sitting here who's in exactly that same situation, and there certainly will be most of us will at some time face that kind of situation where we do what we believe is right. We believe God has told us to do something. It's costly. It's confusing. It maybe makes us look stupid. And we come to God and we say, Oh Lord, what are you doing? And I think Jeremiah's prayer is and wonderful encouragement. When, like Jeremiah, we don't know what God is doing in our lives, we can't even pray properly, when our prayers begin with a groan and they end with uncertainty. What a contrast to seven steps to a powerful prayer life manual type of, you know, prayer. And what an encouragement that God answers such prayers as He did with Jeremiah. So, here's my third point. Acting on the Lord's instruction, praying for the Lord's affirmation, he receives the Lord's explanation in the next few verses Now, notice Jeremiah began his prayer with a statement about God's power our sovereign Lord you made the heavens and the earth by your great power an outstretched arm nothing is too hard for you we all sang it at the beginning that's why we chose it I'm not sure we all believe it but we all sang it the test is when something like this happens yeah nothing is too difficult for you, you saying that to God this morning about some particular situation But his prayer has ended with this kind of open-ended statement. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, Sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Stops and then God butts in and says, He's saying, "As it were, did I get that right, Lord? You know, about nothing being too hard for you because I bought this field and it looks to me like it's a pretty bad investment, frankly." And the Lord, notice what the Lord does. And again, if you want an interesting study in the Bible, look at the questions God asks people. God more than often asks people questions rather than making statements, particularly at times of confusion. So the Lord's question, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, verse 26, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Do you really believe that, Jeremiah? Now, Jeremiah would have recognized the question because if you know your Bibles and he was a good Jew and he would know his Bible very well, the Lord actually asked the same question to somebody else. It's a Bible quiz now and I won't get you to raise your hand if you know the answer. But the father of Israel, Abraham. You remember when he was an old man and his wife was well past childbearing age and the Lord appeared, these angels turned up and they said, about this time next year your wife will give birth to a son. And his wife Sarah was listening at the tent door and she laughed. Is that possible? And the Lord heard. He said to Abraham, I heard what she did. She laughed. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And what was humanly impossible came true as they gave birth to a son. And they called him Isaac, which means he laughs. (laughs) Because every time they saw him, they thought, that's amazing. Now, the Lord asked Jeremiah the same question. At a time when the future of Abraham's descendants looks as bleak, if not bleaker. He says to Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? And he answers his question by saying to Jeremiah, I'm going to do two things that seem absolutely impossible and too difficult. Notice what they are. The Lord will do two impossible things. First of all, he says, he will judge his people, verses 28 to 35, through the Babylonians, by destroying Jerusalem, because of their great sin. Now you say, why is that impossible? Well, if you ask any Jew at this time, it is absolutely impossible because God's promises—God promised that Zion will be inviolate, the city will never be destroyed, and God just can't do it. That's why they live there in their complacency. They never thought it could happen. But what they forgot was that God's promises were conditional on their obedience. And for generations, God had patiently waited with these people and they'd sunk lower and lower in depravity, failed to listen to what he'd said, until they were now even practicing child sacrifice. And there comes a point when God says, Enough is enough. I'm going to stop this. What seemed impossible was possible for the God of power. And today there are few and fewer people, and sadly, tragically, few and fewer Christians, who believe that God will judge sin and punish sinners. But God has the power, make no mistake. He has the power and he will use it. He comes to judge the world with righteousness. There is a day of judgment coming. But the Lord explains, and you you can see Jeremiah at this point, the Lord said he's going to do this impossible thing. Jeremiah is still thinking, well, if that's the case, what about the field? It really is a bad investment. The Lord says, I'm going to do a, a second impossible thing. And they flow one into the other, almost, be, almost as though the one follows the other without any break. Well, there's, there's actually a 70-year break, but he says he'll do a second impossible thing. He will save his people, verses 36 to 44, by gathering them from exile, restoring them to their land because of his great covenant love for his people. And so, back to the present. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, your investment is absolutely secure. Verse 43 Once more, fields will be bought in the land of which you say it is a desolate waste, without men or animals, for it has been handed over to the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin. In the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And what the Lord promised, of course, came true. Seventy years later, God began to restore his people as the exiles returned from Babylon. The work of restoring the walls of Jerusalem, Rebuilding the city began what seemed impossible and foolish when the Lord told Jeremiah to buy a field, came true. You see, Jeremiah made a sound investment in God's future. Now, let's say something in conclusion and just allude to the next chapter because it's also important. This wasn't all that the Lord told Jeremiah about the future. If you look at chapter 33, you've got your Bible open in front of you. We read something else. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the God, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. And here's a fourth and final stage that Jeremiah never anticipated in investing in God's future, responding to the Lord's invitation. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name, Here's an amazing promise. When I was at Sunday school, used to be told, this is God's telephone number, Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Call to me and I will answer you. Tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. As it were, God lifts the horizon of Jeremiah and says, yeah, 70 years, they're going to come back. But Jeremiah, there's some amazing things that are totally unknowable, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. We don't have time to look at them all, but... If you're a believer, read them and study them because they're such wonderful promises for God's people. God promises cleansing for sin, verse 8. Everlasting joy and peace, verses 10 to 13. A righteous king who will reign. An eternal priesthood offering sacrifices to God that will be acceptable. An unbreakable covenant. And as it were, Jeremiah sitting there in this confinement. He's looking at 70 years and the Lord is saying, look further, way into the future. And all these promises were fulfilled. The fulfillment began in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw last week in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. As the Apostle Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. The New Covenant was made through the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of the New Covenant sealed. God did those two impossible things. Where his wrath and mercy met, his justice satisfied, his love displayed in the cross of Jesus. And all of God's final promises we look forward to will finally be fulfilled in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's future. As we thought in our study last week, if you were here, the best is yet to be. Now, if you were here last week, there were lots of nodding heads and everybody smiled and said, yes, amen. Amen. But let me ask you, in all sincerity, as I've asked myself, do we really believe in it? Are you investing in God's future? Let me finish on a practical note. By asking you a question, as I've asked myself, as well as preachers always should do. This is what I've preached to myself this week. I've preached to you again this morning. Have you... If you're a... Believe You say, I'm a Christian, I believe in God's promises, I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm relying on God's future, I'm investing in that. Okay, here's a a really practical question. Have you ever done anything in obedience to God's word that other people who weren't Christians thought was really stupid? Or more specifically, thought was a complete waste of money? Now, there are big things that you can put in this category. The person who gives up an illustrious career to serve God overseas. Or the person who gives away a fortune to help the needy. But there are many smaller things that fall into the same category. Giving up an evening or two every month to go and serve soup and blankets on Waverley Station to the homeless. Giving up hours every week to teach children while we're here in junior church or in the uniformed organisations. Giving up your summer holidays. I'm going to give up two weeks of my holiday this year. What are you going to do? I'm going to go and help at the Scripture Union camp. They're all things which by normal reckoning don't seem a good investment of time unless you really believe in God's future. Or they seem a poor investment in money. So let me embarrass you all. And if you know this church, I don't speak about money very often. But let's let's be absolutely this is about seventeen shekels invested in the field, alright? Let's suppose one of those financial gurus, you know the ones on tell you come to you and they say, Right, I want to look at your finance, I'm gonna help you get your finances in shape, you know? Okay? Uh, And and you open up your accounts and your bank statements and everything else. And the financial investor goes to and says, let's see now. Yeah, mortgage payments, yeah. Gas, electricity, standing orders. Community charge. Yeah, car insurance, yeah, necessary, House insurance, definitely might get flitted out. Phone bill. Hang on a minute, what's this large amount here? What? The amount you give to the Lord's work. Well, there's your answer. Cancel that one, your financial problems will be over. Why on earth would you give so much money to such a cause? Because you are investing in God's future. God's future, what on earth is that when it's at home? You see, if I can put it absolutely crudely, are you prepared as a Christian to put your money where your mouth is? Or do you pay more for satellite TV each week than you do you give to the Lord? Or do you spend more time watching TV every week than you do in serving the Lord? Is there anything in your lifestyle and choices that people who don't believe in God's future think is really, really foolish? I don't mean, as Christians do sometimes, go out and do something really stupid. I mean this. If you are really investing in God's future, then it will inevitably have practical financial effects that won't make sense to most people. That's the test. Are you investing in God's future? Today? Today? The day will declare it. Christ comes again. Let's pray together.